So what can we learn about the person and the ministry of Ezra, the priest and scribe? What can we learn about the person and the ministry of Ezra the scribe? We're in 458 B.C. And before we um, get to the text, just let me uh, tell everybody, you've actually achieved something. You may not know this, but it might be nice to recognize it. We've actually been doing a series called His Story, and we've been doing the Old Testament. And today, we made it all the way through the Old Testament. So congratulations. We're actually uh, next week going to make it to the New Testament. I want you to feel a sense of accomplishment, that you've got a sense that you've achieved something. And uh, so this is the very last sermon on the series from the end of the Old Testament. And what I want to do, if it's okay with you, is I want to do three things this morning. I want to set Ezra in historical context, number one. And then I want to make a general point about the, not just Ezra, but all of this part of Scripture and the, 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 the way it teaches us to live. And then I want to look at the specific person of Ezra and make one point about him. So if you're with me, historical setting, then a general point about Ezra, and then a specific point about Ezra. Everybody with me? All right, so you're going to need your text if you'd be kind enough to turn to Ezra chapter 7. And if you're in uh, Psalms, head left. If you're in Genesis, head right, etc. If you've got a Bible, you can use your PDA. We're going to, we're going to go on the screen. And let me start, if I can, by just saying a word about the historical setting, which is terribly, terribly important. So maybe, but probably, most scholars think we're about 458 B.C. So we've been doing the history of Israel since creation and Abraham the patriarch, and the monarchy, that is kingship, starts in 1000 B.C. And we find ourselves now in the 500 and 400 B.C.s, and what you need to realize as we begin is you've had five centuries of the experiment of having a monarchy in Israel. And the jury is now in. It's an unequivocal failure. Here's Derek Kidner in his commentary. The checkered story of the kings, a matter of nearly five centuries, ended disastrously in 587 B.C. with the sack of Jerusalem, the fall of the monarchy, and the removal to Babylonia of all that made Judah viable. It was a death. That is exactly right. So where we find ourselves is the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722, the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians in 587, and we had Daniel last week who's living in this period of exile when they're carted away from their homeland, from their language, from their worship, from their identity. They've lost everything, especially their common place of worship, the temple in Jerusalem. It's all been obliterated. And the first thing that we need to realize is political systems don't always work. You heard it here first. <laughs> the problem with a monarchy is simply explained. It's based on Lord Acton's famous phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, which, by the way, he said about the church, which is another sermon for another time. But, but the point is, if you have a good king, it's great. If you have a bad king, it's terrible. And guess what? There's a lot of really bad kings. 
And so for five centuries, it's been going on and it's now the jury's in, it's a total failure. So we are after an unequivocal failure of 500 roughly years of one way of going about things. By the way, you are in a country that's roughly 240 years old, which from the perspective of someone like Jonathan is relatively young, the country he comes from. But you do need to know, one of my favorite people who's now gone from this world to the next, Richard John Newhouse, has a wonderful phrase. He talks about the American experiment. If you don't know that phrase, you need to learn it. You're in the midst of the American experiment. Newsflash. Just because America's here now doesn't mean it'll be here in 100 or 200 or 300 years. It's an experiment about a certain way of doing democracy. And we've had our challenges, if you know your history. And we may be in the midst of a challenge now. We can debate the degree, but it it doesn't follow that systems stay and that God does not judge them and that sometimes systems actually fail totally. It was true of the monarchy. It could be true of our country at some point. Pray for your country and pray with a sense of tentativeness that you know that it doesn't have to be here and that it's a gift, but it's also something that's under the hand and the judgment of God. Now, let me say one other thing about the context before we plunge in in detail. You need to understand something else about this period of history, and that is there's a dilemma when you conquer an enormous piece of land with lots and lots of peoples. Think uh, William the Conqueror. Think Alexander the Great. When you have tons of land and tons of people, you have a problem, which is you have a lot of power. That's good. You want power. You also want to keep power. In order to keep power, you have to keep the people in their place. There's various ways to try to do that. The Assyrians, whom I mentioned, they that took the northern kingdom in 722, their way of dealing with it was this. They took peoples that were from different places and different identities and different religious backgrounds and ethnicities and languages and so forth, and they deliberately mixed them, right? So I said at the early service to great chuckles, I mean, imagine early in South Carolina forcibly mixing South Carolinians with the Yankees. Does anybody really think that that would be a nice, stable situation, (laughs) right? No, but this is the idea. You don't have a choice. They bring Southerners to the North and Northerners to the South, ready, set, go. And what you can't do is you can't have a mutiny because you can't figure out who you are and what to do because you're all mixed together. That's one way. The Babylonian way, which is entirely different, is they completely rip you out of your context. They take you to their context and they force you to live deliberately under their rules, their laws, their king, their customs, and no boundary can be ever trespassed. And that's the Babylonians' way, which is another way. And their, their way is you're a suppressed, uh, incredibly tiny minority who are constantly thinking about making sure that you're doing the right thing to the right authorities, otherwise you get in trouble. But now we're in a different period. We're under the Medes and the Persians, and this is crucial for our purposes. When Cyrus and the Persians take over from Babylonia, which happens between the fall of the northern kingdom and our passage today in Ezra, which is why I'm mentioning it, he has an entirely different way of going about this. Let me quote from one of the scholars. He shows restraint to those he conquered toward those who've been forcibly renewed from their countries under the previous administration, and he encourages them to return to their homelands. Whenever possible, he allows the subject people's local autonomy, and in particular, he poses as the champion of their indigenous religion. This is yet a third way. You see what he's doing? He says, okay, you can have your territory, you can have your faith, you can have your language, you can have your custom, I'll let you go back, 
but I'm going to give you tons of freedom within your own sphere, just as long as you're under me. That's yet another way to do it. And that has certain advantages, which we'll see in a second. So you all with me in terms of where we are? We're under the Persians. We're after the fall of the north. And something happens before Ezra, which is the, t- the terrible destruction of the temple is corrected and the temple is reconstructed in two phases, starting in 535 BC. They start to build it and then they get opposed. I know you're shocked that whenever you undertake a big project, there's opposition, right? No surprise there. And so there's a, there's a period of time when they have to stop and then they restart and they finish the temple in 515. And we're roughly something like 60 years after that. So we're back in Jerusalem, Nehemiah rebuild the walls. Uh, People like Haggai and Zechariah and the people of God have rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And now Ezra is a single scribe and priest under the Medes and the Persians with all this local autonomy. And he's got the job of teaching the people and organizing the people and organizing the worship with all this freedom that they're given by the Medes and the Persians. Y'all with me? All right, so that's the general point that puts us where we are. Something like 458, a huge amount of freedom. And now we're focused on one scribe, one priest, and a set of organizations and bowls and rams and offerings. Now let me make a more specific point about exile. And this is really, really important for our purposes before I get to Ezra. This is different than my first historical point. This is a general point. The Bible has lots of pieces, and the piece where we find ourselves today is a piece called exile. That is to say, it's a piece where the people of God are dislodged, they're displaced, they've lost their language, they've lost their family, they've lost their religion. Even today, when we're with Ezra and they're back, they're still back, but they've been dislodged and they're trying to figure out who they are again. They're trying to reconstruct their reality. It takes time. It's difficult. And what you need to realize before we get to Ezra specifically is you need to realize First of all, that this is the most important part of the Bible for our purposes. Do you know that? Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, books like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, this period of exile is the most relevant part of the Bible for our purposes. Why? Because we're in exile in at least two phases. First, religiously and spiritually we're in exile because in America, newsflash, in case you didn't know it, you're no longer in what Martin Marty calls the Protestant hegemony, by which he means there used to be a time when Christianity was utterly dominant and the mainline churches utterly dominated this country. You You can actually find that all the way into the 50s. Huge American attendance at churches. American religious figures like Harry Emerson, Fosdick and stuff, major national figures, right? We're, at, we're in a totally different situation now. We are a minority in a postmodern soup that doesn't seem to have any idea what to make of it. Everybody's ideas seem to be equally valid. You do it your way. I do it my way. But we're anything but in a position of dominant influence like we used to be. And we've got to figure out how to behave, We've got to figure out how to function as a minority and keep our identity and yet not be transformed unduly by the society of which we're a part to the degree to which it's not in accordance with the will of God. Now, here's the thing you need to realize about exile and about this period that's crucial for our purposes this morning. There's something really critically important at a psychological and personal level that happens when you're in exile, and it's this, loss, grief, Exile is about a lot of things, but most especially, it's about loss. It's about grief, right? 
Put yourself in the position of the people who've been carted into Babylonia before they rebuild the temple. Lost your language, lost your land, lost your familiar place, lost the, the worship. Think of all of the loss. And, and think of how that functions in your life as a person, especially at an emotional level. What does it make you want to do when you experience great loss? You ever been with somebody who's lost, say, a company? Uh, some, one of our friends had their house burned down. You ever been with somebody like that? What, what, what goes on? Think about Job. Loses just about everything. Right? What do you do when that happens? What you do emotionally is you have a big loss, and here's what you want. Big compensation. You've lost big, you want big. Right? Psalm 137, written in this period, says about the Babylonians essentially this. They obliterated us. I want you to obliterate them. And oh, by the way, I want to go into detail. I want you to take their babies and bash their heads against the rock. Just so we're clear. That's somebody who's experienced big loss and who wants big compensation. And I get it. I've been through this myself. Maybe you have. At an emotional level, it makes sense. But here's the thing that you need to realize about exile and about the passage today and the whole period that's so critical for us. What's the most important thing when you go through exile? When you want big compensation. What's the whole exilic set of the Bible teach? The most important thing, brothers and sisters, is you need little things. Exactly the counterintuitive opposite of what you think you want. Job experiences great loss. Just about everything. He's out on the, a pile of dung at the edge of the city. The only thing his friends did right, and I want you to notice this, is they showed up. It was when they opened their mouths that they got in trouble because their theology was so bad. But they showed up. That may not seem like much to you. If someone is on the brink of suicide, showing up or not showing up, making a phone call or not making a phone call, sending an email or not sending an email, that's literally the difference between life and death. Little things are not little things ever, but they're especially not little things in a time of exile. Now, if I had time, and I want you to take this down, I'd take you to Jeremiah 29, which is one of the wonderful passages of Scripture, which embodies this in a nutshell. It is a letter written by Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon in exactly this situation. Dear exiles, you're going through a horrific period of loss, so I'm going to compensate totally is not what it says. It says you're going through a period of horrific loss, and here's what I want you to do. And it's, it, it reads so strangely at one level. He says this, he says, build houses, get married, have children, go to school, go to work. Boom. What's he doing? He's telling them to do little things. People who lose their spouse, sometimes the most important thing they need is to make their bed. It's like that. And I made this point earlier. I want to make it again at this service. You can make the case, brothers and sisters, that those people in exile before Ezra, their faith and their little things, they're getting married, they're buying houses, they're going to school, they're doing their faithful work, is the thin reed on which the faith of Judaism goes from the period of exile to the New Testament, without which you don't get our Lord. 
There is no Judaism in the New Testament without those apparently little things, which means what? It means this. Little things are not little things ever with God. So before I get to Ezra, you need to realize this. What am I doing? I'm shining the spotlight on one prescribe on, in 458 BC doing one set of administrative and interpretive exercises. So what? No. <laughs> it may seem little, but it's not little. Are you all with me? Mm-hmm. All right, now, I just want to point out, and I'm going to come back to this, you do know you're in a period of great loss in another sense, right? We're all going through COVID. The only question is what kind of loss are you experiencing? Everybody I'm talking to this, this morning is in grief, and significant grief. And we want big compensation, right? You're in a culture that is, people are mad at the government and mad at the health authorities, and the internet is just one big spleen venting exercise to a large extent. But it doesn't help. They want big compensation, right? And I want you, I want you to think about that. You're in a time of loss. And if you actually pay attention and you think about it, That's not going to work. It's not the big things, it's the little things. And oh, by the way, can I also say, before I get to Ezra, you are in Advent, which is a time of preparation. And can I remind you what Christmas and Advent are really about? They're about preparing for what? What are we preparing for? We're preparing for the event that literally transforms the entire world. And how does it start? With a out-of-wedlock pregnant teenager nobody's ever heard of, and a baby born in some kind of stable somewhere. Looks really small. Looks really insignificant. Not to God. You all with me? All right, now, third point. Ezra in particular, turn to your text, and let's look at this great figure. I want to look at verse 6, and I want to look at verse 10. And what I want to say is two things. I want to say something about what he's got to work with, and then I want to say something about how he's going to work with it. So first of all, I want you to notice what he's got to work with. Look at verse 6. Then Everybody see where I am? Then Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And here's the key phrase. And if, you, if, you got, if you're the kind of person that likes to underline or take notes, please underline this. That the Lord God of Israel had given... He's concerned with the scriptures as given. They come in a certain form, and he's not to modify them or play with them or decide that he wants to think that they're different and they need to be different in this way or that way. He receives them as an entity outside himself that he has to bow down to and pay attention to, and he has to live in the light of it, not it in the light of him. You may not believe it, but I'm a chemistry major. That's another story for another time. I love the history of science. What is science? Lots of things. But one of the crucial things is science is a series of people willing to change their mind based on new evidence. Do you know that about scientists? It's actually not easy to get people to change their mind. It's not easy for you to change your mind. You ask my wife. It's not easy for me to change my mind. But one of the things about being a scientist is you have to design a hypothesis based on the data, and a lot of times the hypothesis doesn't work. And guess what you have to do? You can't say to the data, you crummy, lousy data, I don't want you to be that way. I want you to be this way. That's not science. Now you've gone outside the realm of science. That's how people get in trouble, and there have been recent articles about some of the fuddy-duddy stuff that people have played with by manufacturing evidence to get it to meet their thesis. But that's not the history of science. The history of science is there's the data. Your hypothesis didn't work. Modify your hypothesis. The data is a given. What are you going to do about it? 
This is somebody who takes it as a gift and a given that's out there that he has to bow down to, pay attention to, be under the authority of. You can think of him as the the English word understand. To understand is to stand under. If you were to find yourself in his study somewhere in the 5th century B.C., intellectually, personally, humanly, he would be standing under the law. That's his posture. You all with me? Now, there are five different things that are said about him in relation to the law. First, he's skilled. Verse 6, you see it there? It's a great word. It means rapid. Kidner, in his commentary, says, this suggests a quickness of grasp and an ease of movement in this complex material, which was the fruit of devoted study. Quickness of grasp and ease of movement. You got the idea? It's like, a, it's like a place that he's super familiar with, and it doesn't matter where you take him on the map or where you take him on the road. He knows where he is. He knows where the texture is. He's, he's got, and, and, and he knows it quickly because he's so familiar with it. It doesn't matter where you drop him down in any region on that map. He knows the map so well that he grasps it. He's skilled like that. But that's not all. There's four verbs in verse 10. Look at them. Great stuff, this. Set heart. First, second, study, third, do, fourth, teach. You all with me? You see all these verbs? When I was taking Old Testament in Vancouver early on in seminary, one of my professors said, learn in the Old Testament to pay attention to the verbs. This is one passage where that is absolutely true. To set his heart, literally to to seek after. It's a word that means to chase, like aggressively chasing an animal as a hunter. Ezra had to pursue not just literary literary acquirement, but he had to put the most important part of himself at the disposal of the law, and he had to do it earnestly. Somebody who's a seeker after truth is somebody who's devoted to it in a way that's powerful. He lets it shape him. He's thinking about it at night. I think of Deuteronomy 6. You shall uh, talk about the Lord when you wake up and when you uh, go to sleep and when you're walking along the way. It's everywhere in his life. You all with me? He sets his heart. I think of uh, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They set their heart. There's an intentionality that comes with this. You do know that this is important for Christians, right? You actually need to prepare for worship. You actually need to prepare for Bible study. (laughs) Actually, if you just go to Bible study raw without preparing, a lot of times God tries to speak and he can't. This is not something that happens with Ezra. Ezra sets his heart first. Then it says he studies it, he does it, and he teaches it. It's a very comprehensive set. Did you catch the collect for today? It's my favorite collect in the Book of Common Prayer. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. And then it it knocks you down with five verbs. Did you catch them? Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy words. So hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. And you've only really gotten to grips with the reality of God's word if you've done all five. And you have an advantage this morning. You actually are going to come up and eat communion. And in the Old Testament, there are prophets that are called to eat the scroll. It may seem strange, but it's a sacramental reality of the fact that 
They are eating the word of God, and that is what we are to do. It is to be our meal. It is to be our meditation. It is to be our food. It is to be our constant companion. You all with me? This is a very comprehensive picture of someone who utterly delights in and loves and studies God's word. So those are my three points. Now I've got three questions, and we're done. You ready? This is the tough part, though, because I go from preaching to meddling. Sorry. (laughs) Okay, so first of all, I want to say something about the sovereignty of God, which is what I mentioned at the beginning. Do you catch that phrase in this passage, the hand of the Lord? It actually appears three times. The hand of the Lord was with him. The hand of the Lord was with him. In other words, I said it was a 500-year experiment with monarchy that failed. I said America was an experiment. Those are all, that's all true. But part of what this passage teaches us for the umpty umpt time is when we say our Father who art in heaven and we do a steer, series called His Story, which is based on the English word history, it's because it coheres. It's going somewhere. We actually believe as Christians that God is controlling the narrative. Think of it this way. Somehow in the mystery and the providence of God, the, the threads of our life are knit together into the tapestry we call history. We've seen this before in this series. Joseph says you to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God is over all of it. Everybody needs to read the Lords of the Rings for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons is because Tolkien has an absolute stranglehold on the fact that the history of the world is God's story first of all. And the reason why The Lord of the Rings is a tale for our time is this. The Ring Saga wonderfully shows us that we're not left to ourselves. The writer of the story takes an active part in the story, and as Tolkien himself has said, the stories, the myths, and the legends that are based on this knowledge and grounded in this promise are capable of offering the reader an unforgettable and transforming vision of the ultimate victory that is to come. What is so magisterial about it is it's so contingent. It has so many ups and downs. There's so many bad people. There's Mordor and all those terrible figures and all this in malevolence that's in the world. And yet somehow there's, there's Frodo and Sam and there's that ring. And somehow this little figure manages to be the hinge on which it all somehow coheres. And that which was sad becomes untrue, to quote him in his own words. Part of being a Christian is understanding that the way to look at the world as a Christian is that the God who was in charge at Christmas and the God who was in charge at Ezra is the God who's in charge now. Do you live that? Do you believe that? Do you trust in the providence of God? That's the first question. The second question I think is probably the most important question in terms of this passage, and it's this. Can you allow God to allow you to ask yourself the question, what are the little things in a time of exile that you need to be doing? I really can't emphasize this point enough. Christianity is subversive in lots of ways, but one of the most subversive is it teaches us to pay attention to little things. So here's my question. What are the little things that God is calling you to do this Advent 2021 at Church of the Holy Cross in South Carolina to be faithful that you might think are little, but for God are not so little? Just let me give a few examples. At our past week's staff meeting, Chris Warner, the rector, told us, and I've got two witnesses here this morning, maybe I have more, but um, he said, could you guys please look everybody in the eye? He did. 
That's ridiculous. I mean, you know, you know that in first grade. What kind of advice is that? It's indispensable advice. <laughs> because one of the things he pointed out is actually in the pandemic, it's one of the things that's disappeared. People are afraid to look at other people. So the rector told the staff to look people in the eye. Seems little, not. Not little. This past week, our daughter got sick and she asked for us to pray. We prayed. That may sound like not much. It wasn't. It was big. It was big for her. It was big for us. When I left my parish, Holy Comforter Sumter, when I served my curacy, one of the things that people did was they said um, occasionally uh, that I did something right, and they would start the sentence like this. They would say, one of the things I'll always remember about you is, and then they'd pause. And if you're a priest, you really don't like those sentences because you have, you have no idea what they're going to say. You know? And I mean, this, this woman's son worked for the IRS, and she's another story for another time. I thought, oh my gosh, what is she going to say? You know what she said? She said, you always gave me communion at the altar rail and said my first name. Do you know what? I forgot I did it. Until she I didn't even realize I was doing it. For her, that was huge. It's not little. One of the other things I wrote down in my notes as a writer is, I was accountable for meeting a deadline. I missed it. I had to call the editor and say, I blew it. And she was so forgiving, so understanding, so uh, kind and conscientious and compassionate. Do you know how much of a difference it makes when you blow it and somebody's nice to you and forgiving? It may, just one deadline and one story. It took me another day. Big deal. Not to me. Not to me. Little things are not little things, brothers and sisters. There's a phone call some of you need to make this week. There's an email some of you need to write. There's a conversation over Zoom or in person that some of you need to have. There's a thank you note that some of you need to write. I could go on all morning. Little things are not little things ever in the kingdom of God, but especially in a time of exile. We're all in the midst of great grief. And the focus is on big things and big loss. And the kingdom of God says, be faithful in little things and be part of the subversive force that changes history for centuries to come. You all with me? Last thing, not just the sovereignty of God and not just the perspective of God about the little things, but this wonderful image of the word of God. And the way I wrote it down in my notes is this. This is the question. Do we love and delight in the word of God? That's the question. Do we love and delight in the word of God? The, the Psalms start with Psalm 1 and the figure in Psalm 1, blessed is the man, has always been seen by the church as Jesus because the Psalms are the prayer books of Jesus. And so the, the, the person that this just described is the, the embodiment of wisdom. He does not walk in the way of, of scoff, uh, sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers and so on, but it says on his law, he meditates day and night. Here is the, the Anglican scholar, Austin Farrar, talking about the Bible, this thing that's given. When you come to the Bible, what do you think you're dealing with? Here's one of the greatest scholars in the history of the church. What is the Bible like, he says? It's like a letter which a soldier wrote to his wife about the disposition of his affairs and the care of his children in case he should be killed. And the next day he was shot and died. And the letter was torn and stained with his blood. And her friend said to the woman, the letter is of non binding force. It's not a legal will. And is so injured by the accidents of the writer's death that you cannot even prove what it means. But she said, I know the man. And I am satisfied I can see what he means. 
and I shall do it because it is what he wanted me to do and because he died the next day. If you think of the Bible as a love letter from God stained with his blood, you will never think of it the same way again. That's what it is. It is a letter from God to you stained with his blood. And do you love it? Do you love it? We have three children. The youngest is now a veterinarian in Pennsylvania. She was born with a supernatural love of animals that neither her mother or I can explain. We can't find it on either side of the family. But when I mean supernatural love of animals, I mean from the get-go. I mean, if you came to our house early on, we had snakes, we had squirrels, we had frogs, we had cats, we had dogs. And heaven help you if you were in the car in the rain and there was a stray dog on the side of the road. Just forget about it. One of my earliest memories, when she's about six, I'm reading her bedtime story in a room upstairs and uh, I'm starting to read and I get about halfway into it and all of a sudden there's this noise and the noise starts rising and rising and he hits this great crescendo and it's so loud I can't hear myself read the story and I look at her six years old and I say Selim what in the world is that noise and she says dad that's just the frogs they're just humping each other <laughs> as, he, as if she's talking about you know the sun comes up in the morning today's Tuesday this is the way that she was put together now she's a veterinarian she has a great love of birds And one of the great people in the area of birds you may know about is John Audubon. One story about John Audubon who loved birds. To to bring home this point about what it means to love something, the Audubon Society is named for him for a reason. Birds are crazy cool. But nobody loved birds as much as John Audubon. They're crazy stories about this guy. He would count his physical comforts as nothing. He would rise at midnight, night after night, and go into swamps to study certain nighthawks. He would crowd, mo- crowd, motions, crouch mostly, motionlessly in the dark and fog, hoping to just discover one more additional single species. And my favorite story about him comes one summer when he was repeatedly visiting the bayous near New Orleans because he couldn't find this one shy water bird that he'd never seen before. He would stand up to his neck in stagnant water, scarcely breathing, while poisonous water moccasin snakes went past his face. Anybody want to trade places? It was not comfortable. It was not pleasant. But he beamed with enthusiasm, according to his friends, and he's reported to have said, and I quote, listen to this, but what of that? I have a picture of the bird. That is love. That is delight. That is single-minded enthusiasm. That is the kind of attitude God wants for us to have toward his word. So God is in charge. Don't doubt it. Please know it. Little things are not little things. And let us pray, all of us, to recover a renewed sense of the awesomeness of the word of God and to learn to study it and to love it and delight in it. In Jesus' name, amen.